Action Park Media. All right, welcome to another episode of Victory the Podcast. I'm Doug Allen. I'm Kevin Connolly. We have a, a bonus edition. People like our bonus episodes. And, we're, and listen, we're going to go deep here. You know, I, I went to the American Film Institute for directing, which AFI is is a great school in Hollywood that you know a lot of uh, film students go to. But uh, one of the things when I look back, the directing program was actually the hardest one to get into because directors are considered what they are. But the truth is, if I redid it, and what I say to anyone young out there, cinematography. Editing, production design, these are actually discernible skills, whereas... That could lead to directing, actually. You're almost reverse engineering it when you start with directing, yeah? Yeah, well, I mean, listen, you're a director also, but the truth is it's, you know, there are certain things you can teach, but directing is, in my opinion, there's a lot of it is like kind of innate talent and skill. And the real skilled people that work on these shows... You know, which I wish, you know, for, throughout my run of my career, I wish I, I knew more about cinematography. Obviously, I know what I like and what I don't like. But if you left me with the camera and the lights, I wouldn't be able to do anything. So I think looking back on it, for anyone who's out there young, AFI kind of set up a system where the director is the most important person, just like Hollywood does. But for me, I relied on people like my cinematographer, like my editor to really help me get the vision of things that I, I couldn't do, you know, right. and, and filmmaking is such a collaborative process. And I say filmmaking, obviously I mean TV as well, but it's such a collaborative process. It's not painting. It's not like you go in your house and you paint, you need a lot of people. It's such you're... a cliche, but it takes a village. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing. Unless you're like, uh, John sales who used to do all of it. Or but... Vincent Gallo. Vincent Gallo. <laughs> right, but I was not all. capable of that. And when we started, and most people aren't right. Yeah. I mean, I think most people aren't, but some great, directors come from cinematography, which is, uh, Fearberg will give us some of those people. But Stephen For Fearberg, those of you who don't know our special guest today, Doug, go ahead, you teed him up a little bit. Stephen Fearberg, who I saw right when we were looking for a cinematographer for the pilot of Entourage, which Stephen ultimately was not available for. I saw the movie Secretary right before that with Maggie Gyllenhaal and James Spader. Great movie. That's the height of independent filmmaking. Real indie filmmaking, Secretary. Yeah, and I, I want to talk to Stephen about that, because actually I really haven't spoken to him about that since we tried to get him from the pilot. So well, you're very self-absorbed. So if you weren't involved in secretary. Yeah. I mean, what's the talk about? So anyway, without further, <laughs> further ado, ado, Stephen Fearburn. How you doing? ASC. Yeah. <laughs> ASC. Yeah. A very, which is kind of a miracle given I came from Detroit and didn't know anything. And then I, I would see like ASC cinematographer on the movie, on, you know, on the movie screen, ASC. And then the idea that like I am. It's kind of hard to believe. But what does that mean? You didn't know anything. You're what in does ASC stand for? ASC, American Society of Cinematographers. Okay. But what I'm does... the vice president now, or one of three. Is yeah. that true? Yeah. Of the of the, uh, of ASC, the, ASC, the yeah. Right. Wow. All right. Yeah, Impressive. Yeah. So, okay, but what does that mean you didn't know anything? You're in Detroit growing up. Did you want to be a photographer or what? I, I, was, I was a photographer, and we were taking pictures of, like, you know, like, on, you know, the football games in the high school. And then, really, a friend of mine got, a like, a regular camera... And he started shooting stuff, and then we go, well, let's. Why don't we do this thing? So we shot a thing in my basement about pool playing, and then we did. Then every summer we would do like a, like a uh, opus, like a big movie, like forty minutes, an hour long, something like that. So we did that every summer, and we'd act in it and direct it, and we'd all just share whatever, like four of us. And then come the time to go to college, and it sort of was like, hey, you know, I really like this. And then everybody's like, what? No, no, you're crazy. I mean, that's like that's your hobby. 
okay, you get a real job, right. be, you know, whatever, do like a, get a real career, be a doctor, a lawyer, whatever, you know, those things, <laughs> and an engineer or something. Well, and, you're, a, you're a Jew, so you're supposed to be like a professional career. supposed to be career. a doctor, yeah. yeah. You got to be a doctor or a lawyer or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, and, and the movie thing was like, I mean, honestly, when I think of it, it's like, you know, when Disney starts, the, the, whatever the Disney show is, you know, and it's got the magic castle. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, to me, what, like, the idea of me going to L.A. to be in filmmaking was like going to the Disney castle. Right. Just like a far-off dream. A far-off dream. Like, how are you going to get there? How are you going to get there? How are you going to get there? Well, you if know? you're Connolly, you start at four years old and you start acting in Matchbox commercials. So he, he, ju- he jumped the gun. But. Right. But, no, but I moved out to L.A. and I had, you know, a similar analogy. You're it's, you're, you're in your hometown and then you, you step off that plane in L.A. and you've, you've stepped into you've stepped into the... <laughs> you're, you're with the big boys. And nobody period. hands you, like, a screenplay. Like, exactly. hey, you want to do this? So, exactly. all right. So, Stephen, you, where, where'd you go to college? So, I, I ended up going to Stanford University. Oh, so Ooh. you were stupid. You were not Yeah, I, I, no, I was very I good at certain things. That. I, I was married to someone who went to Stanford for about four days, but uh, uh, anyway, <laughs> I'm not supposed to talk <laughs> about it. Well, I don't get along with anybody. I only have one friend from Stanford, or two, because I didn't, I didn't fit in there. I was like this guy from Detroit with an edge, and all these people were very, you know, they were wealthy, and I had never been around wealthy people, and they were also kind of pretended to be laid back, but I remember like I, I went. I took a pre-med course for one day just to see what it was like, and everyone's like laid back. Yeah, I'm not doing anything. And then the next day, you show up and you go, "These are mo- these guys were like <laughs> studying like motherfuckers <laughs> because they they're, they're like acting like they're cool, but they're not. Right underneath, they're like super intense. So I should be thankful that I couldn't get into Stanford. You're saying? Oh no, I hated it. <laughs> I wouldn't even go back my senior year. I got into this program in England in British drama and filmmaking. And if I hadn't got... And then I wouldn't go to the graduation. I They sent me my diploma. I mean, I socially, I was a complete reject there. Right. All not right. that I'm not... Not that I'm accepted any, in any... <laughs> well, I, I was actually going to say, Fearberg, you're fun at a party. You're fun. <laughs> Fearberg's fun to drink with. He dances. He's, you know, you're, you've come out of your shell in your later years. I don't know what college is like, but well, you're a fun guy now. Well, thank you for saying that. I do, I do, that <laughs> no one lot. else that has said That means so it. much to me, you almost can't believe it. Yeah. No, I mean... And, you know, in, in Detroit, I would go back and I, I, you know, I would date people and I'd have a great time. Then I'd go to Stanford and I'd be like, Miserable. I just didn't fit in. Right. I didn't fit and in. And so you go to England. What is the school in England? This was like a thing. This was kind of freaky. They have this giant place called Cliveden House, which is like now this super expensive hotel. But at the time, it was like a rundown manor house that famous people had lived in. The Astors had lived there. And it's like you get you show up. And you look out the back window, and there's, like, sculptured gardens for, like, a mile. It's like you're living in a palace. And I go there. I'm never going to live in a place like this as good as this for the rest of my life. I've never seen anything like this. But basically, Stanford made a deal with Oxford University, and they gave money to maintain the building. They didn't pay anything. They just paid for, like, the five maintenance people there. And then they got to use it. And so I was taught by, like, Oxford professors. I saw four or five plays a week. I was. Uh, I saw every British film, all the British documentaries. All Connolly, the British... are you getting the feeling that Stephen's a lot smarter than us? Or well, no, I, mean, I, I didn't know about the Stanford thing, so I'm still digesting that. But I'm, I'm actually thinking at at what point because we know Doug. I mean, I, I, the same thing. I agree, right? So you can you can write, Doug. You're a writer, and then you know may even know where to put the camera. But okay, you got your lights. Like where. Steve, how do you where where does that begin? At what point in I guess the educational journey of cinematography 
do you actually start looking at it uh, as it's almost like uh, geometry, right? There is an advantage, like if you're good at math and science and physics, which I was. That's how I got in. And I took a little bit of that. And then I go, this is not I I had this weird thing. I went in. My parents go, you you got to go to Stanford because you got in. And, you know, in, in, in Detroit, there's no person in the arts at all except for the musicians. The music scene was great. But there was, like, no artist, no filmmaker, nobody. And they, so, like, I had no role model. And they go, well, you should go and study engineering in, in Stanford. And so I put that down as a major. But what I wanted to do was study filmmaking. And the first day before school starts, I go to meet the engineering, my, my, my advisor. And I go in there, and he's head of the department at Stanford Engineering. So I go in to meet the engineering advisor, and he walk, I walk in the door, and he goes, what are you doing here? And I go, well, you're my advisor. He goes, why? And I go, well, I thought I might want to major in engineering. And he goes, come with me. And he, he walks me out of, the, out of his office and points down the hall, and there's like four guys there with like pocket protectors and like the, the people you would think are Stanford engineers, right? right? And he goes, those guys are engineers. He goes, you're too interesting. You would never be a good engineer. <laughs> and he kicked me out of his office. But so as, a, he, as, a, he, as a nice thing, he was saying, oh, no, it was a, a gift. But what it helps you with is like, you know, and I, this is a typical thing. Like a director says, you know, I see this, I feel this, and, I, and this is kind of what the feel I want. And then as the DP, you're going, okay, how do I do that? And so you kind of have to, you have, the, you have two halves of the brain. There's the creative part, like you think of the shot, which should be not logical at all. Should be whatever crazy idea you have. But then once you think of it, like, how are you going to make that happen? Well, that means you need this lens and this camera, and th- that light has to go there, and this light has to go there. And that, for that, whatever that gift was at being, like, good at math and physics, that does help. Yeah. And then it, it also helps. Sometimes people tell you you can't do anything. Like, they go, oh, you can't do that. And then I'm like, don't talk. I'm, I always think, well, you can't talk down to me because whatever you think you understand, I can understand it, and I will figure out a way to do it. Because I always I don't like to be told no. Yeah, I like but, I, but I think what you're saying is interesting, and for some directors, especially people who come from like myself, who had no training in filmmaking and nothing. The first time I was ever on a set in my life was a short film I was making, and I was I was lucky enough to meet Harold Ramis, who was one of my idols when I was young. He read a script of mine, which he said uh, he really liked the first twenty pages. He hated it after that. Oh, he really, he's honest he really liked but the he first said twenty. He, liked it. He, it, he took a meeting with me, and it was like one of the great thrills this, of my the, life. The wheels really come off after the first twenty pages. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah I, I, I remember. Sad. By the way, like I got this meeting with Harold Ramis, and he was like, "The first twenty pages." I'm like, "Can't you buy it now? Like, fix the rest and turn it into Animal House, Caddyshack, Groundhog Day, anything?" And he's like, "No, nah, it doesn't really work like that." But anyway. Just little thing for giving back. Two years later, I was at a table with like seven friends, and I had bragged to everybody that I got to meet Howard Ramis, and there's Howard Ramis. And I, they're like, go say hello. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go bother fucking Howard Ramis. And I swear to you, he walked up to the table, and he said, hey, Doug, how are you? And are I you was, kidding? I was like a hero to my friends. But anyway, Howard Ramis, who did Caddyshack, Animal House, Stripes. Ghostbusters. What he said to me, though, I said, I'm, I'm directing this short film. I honestly do not know what I'm doing. And he said, when I got on the set of Caddyshack, I had no idea what I was doing. And he goes, the most important person for you is your cinematographer. And he said to me, my DP said, I guarantee you're the funniest person on this set. Walk on like you know what you're doing and say, place the camera there so everybody can feel like you're in charge. And that's what he did. And, you know, when I made this first short film, my DP looked at me. He said, hey, check out the shot. And, I, and it's embarrassing to say this now, but I put my eye up to the lens and I saw black. 
and I thought there was uh, there was a uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, what's on a camera? Lens cap. I thought the lens cap was on the camera. I thought they're fucking with me, and I'm embarrassed. All I see is black, and I'm like, I go, Dave. It was this David Morrison was my DP, and I go, uh, David, I don't see anything. He goes. Doug, you got to press your eye, uh, really press your eye up to the camera. So I just had not put it far enough up. But the bottom line is, I really didn't know what I was doing. And even when we started getting to Entourage, where I had directed two movies, four short films, I still was very nervous about what the look of this show was going to be, how I was going to get what I could kind of think in my head, and how I was going to express it. And then you have to find the person. You have to like their work, which was Secretary. I liked yours, and I saw other stuff you did. Then we have to get together, and then you were unavailable. So do you remember when we started Entourage and I, I tried to get you for the pilot? I mean, my memory of it is a, is a little different than that. I had said at some point, I said, I don't want to do network. I don't want to do television anymore to my agent. I said, no. And he said, well, and so then a w- weeks go by and he said, well, look, I've got this script. You should read it. It's for HBO. They're not like television because you've been doing, you've done some network stuff and this is going to be different. And I read the script for the pilot. I totally get this. I love this show. I want to do it. Um, and I, and, and it was weird when I read it because I actually, I don't know that I've had an experience like that since where as I was reading, I saw it, like I really saw exactly how it should look and feel. And so I was interviewed, and I didn't wasn't offered to me, and I and and later I found out why because and it makes sense to me. I had just done this television show called Kingpin, and the producer on that, David Mills, he loved me. And that show, a lot of people thought was like one of the best things ever on television, but I was super anal compulsive and slow. Yeah, and I knew it, and I finished that show. And I said to my gaffer, I said, you know, I know the producer loved this and he would hire me for anything, but I can't do a show like that again. That's too slow. I don't even want to be that way. And and my gaffer said to me, he said, you know, you're if you just decided to be fast, you would be as good or better than the DPs who are fast. You just have to make that choice. Well, it's interesting because I know, listen, I, I remember the rap on you when I wanted you for 40, when I wanted you for the movie. Everyone's like, Fearberg slow, Fearberg slow. And I said, me and him are not slow. We will we will move. But what to- uh, Also, too, sorry to interrupt you, Doug, just to give everybody the picture here. You know, the DPs sort of, you know, controls it, right? The director, you're all waiting for the director of photography to say, okay, your star looks good. The lighting is, okay, you're waiting on the DP to say, I'm ready, okay? now You're always waiting for that. You're always waiting to hear, I'm ready, from the DP. Now, listen, if you were to talk to Scorsese or these guys, they'll wait two weeks until the DP says that they're ready, and they're not going a second before. So being slow isn't, you're not taking a nap, you're just making sure that, that it looks the way that you want to look. But you've got to be able to, in the world of TV, you don't want the rep of being slow or you have to overcome that. And and two things, direct DP is, is director of photography, but yeah, when you're doing a show, especially like Entourage, which I, I am having trouble remembering that, and sometimes things did not go the way I wanted. I know I wanted you for the pilot, and and maybe that's what happened. Maybe HBO said no. Maybe it was that the rap on you was you were too slow. I don't remember that, though. I just know as soon as... I feel as- like everybody has that rap, right? No, uh, no. They no, don't. I mean, there's people who are really, really fast. I mean, you know... Right. And, now, and are you? would you consider yourself slow? I feel that what I do, my job is to get it done on time and make the day and have it be the best it can be with the time and money available. Now, and, and I always do that. I always make the day. 
I get it done in time. If I have to be fast, I go fine. And the other thing that's happened a lot, now what happens is I will do something very rough and, you know, okay, in post, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to put a flag to make that wall darker. I'll just do that in post to take me one minute, you know, and I don't have to have uh, two guys try to set some flag that's going to take 10 minutes. I'll do that in post. So I'm just getting, I, I became also, there's a, there's a joy in going for broad strokes. Like just saying, this is basically like that light and that's it. And then don't waste your time like doing little finessing on the back. Because I can do that later. I can do it later. And to some extent, I mean, look, you, you get more experienced. You know, one of the things that was great was I took a painting class and I was t- taking drawing for a long time and I was drawing these things. And one time the, the teacher came up to me and he goes, you got to stop now. And I said, no, no, there's this whole area that I didn't work on yet. No, no, you're going to make it worse. And I did it anyway. And then I looked at it. And I go, you know, he's right, it's worse. Because you it lost the central strength power of it by doing too much detail. And that was a revelation. And I think I had when I was younger, I was that's what I would do. I'd be like, Oh, make that perfect. That well then the thing that you liked in the the main part of it is now weaker because there's other distracting bullshit going on in the background. And so you made you, you made the parts better, but you made the whole worse. And I think in all filmmaking, being a perfectionist, especially on a tight schedule, is always a tricky thing. That being said, Stephen and I, uh, Entourage movie was a 156-page script that we shot in 30 days, which is unheard of. Yeah. And 40 was a pilot we did for HBO, which we were ahead of schedule on. So we always move, but... It was a big battle uh, at first, to be honest, to get you. Though. Like, he's too slow. He can't. I'm like, listen, let me let, let, let me us do also, our thing. too. You know, Stephen and I did a movie together called Dear Eleanor, and it was a Tell 1960s period piece cross country road trip with these two girls driving Jessica cross country. Alba to meet. And- yeah, Jessica Alba. Who else was in that? Luke Wilson. I mean, it was, it, was, it was a small little movie, but we shot the movie in 21 days and we made every day. Yeah. And it looks beautiful and fantastic. And I don't know. I didn't get the slow vibe. I, I don't know. I just didn't get the. Yeah. Slow. I mean, listen. No, I, I really am much. I was slow. I and I think you I, learned how to be faster. Yeah, I learned how to be faster, and it's also about making the choice. And I, on, I did the affair for six, five seasons. You know, I do, I don't waste money. So when I and and the producers, I felt I had a great relationship with them because they knew that I didn't waste money, and and I always finished whatever we needed to do so then if i needed something extra i go to them and i always got it i mean I, I whereas if i looked at myself 20 years ago i was i would be more confrontational with producers i would be and i would be like yeah you you need to you know be less ocd after the pilot shot we had david frankel who directed the pilot uh Last week, and I think Angel Decker was the yeah. DP on the pilot. And the pilot, I love and great, and they did an amazing job. But we really found the look of the show that I wanted, starting with episode two. Like, episode one, David was going to make sure that we covered it, that we got everything so we could do all our options, and thank God, because it got the show picked up. Then when we got picked up, it was okay. You know, me, I've always been, Scorsese is my idol, I want it to look as moving and as interesting as possible, and that's kind of where we started, and that's really where you came in was episode two, we got Julian Farino to direct, um, which we saw, I believe we saw a short film of Julian's because he hadn't done that much TV in America, if any. I'm not. No, I'm not, not sure. I don't think he had done any yeah. TV in America. So, do you remember kind of those those initial discussions between all of us of how we were going to get the look of this show and and how we wanted to do things slightly different than they were in the pilot? 
Yeah, I mean, I remember. I mean, I remember they brought me back in. I mean, for the interview. Who's this day? You keep giving this day. No, Lev, I don't, me, Tim Lars. I don't know if you were there. Lev was there for sure. Were you there at the second interview? <laughs> of course. I'll Tim Marks was our, our yeah. first uh, line producer. Tim Marks, who's a huge fan of mine, and he he um he brought me in for the second interview, and it was a weird interview because I came in and I and I I think I'd seen the pilot, and I thought, okay, that's good, but it's not right for this show. And I came in and I, I showed like pictures of impressionist paintings, Renoir le, le, uh, at the Moulin. And you I see and I, how Renoir plays into Entourage, by the way, everyone. You're listening to that? Yeah, Renoir. Renoir. <laughs> I mean, it is. Honestly, it really is. Well, tell because us. Because these guys would like come in and they would try to capture the aliveness of something. They didn't want something that was too posed or too, per- again, too perfect, something that was alive and chaotic. And, and they would paint really quickly. They would go and see this thing and they would paint as quickly as they could to try to catch the life of it. And I felt that that was the most important thing for the show, that it felt alive and kind of offhand, like not too planned out, not like kind of like just, hey, here's these guys. Let's go hang out with them, and then let's see what we see. Oh, look at that. We're going in that club. Look how cool that is. Oh, look how cool that is. And then, oh, yeah, look, that thing's over there is happening. Look at that. And then, oh, shit, look at that. And so it should have that idea of exploration and of not knowing what's coming next and of not like, and you shouldn't, and also, and this, we, we actually mentioned at one point, because you asked me, like, backlight. Why don't you backlight us? Because we'll look better. And I said, that's exactly why I won't backlightly <laughs> backlight you, because you guys already look too good. And then it's going to start to look like we did something. So I try to make it look like we never lit anything, like we just captured, we just were hanging out with these guys and looking at shit. And then just to interject, that's where some of the battles do come in. Actors, of course, they want to look as handsome, as beautiful as they possibly can. But the show, which we wanted and and you really helped bring it to, was we wanted it to feel like a documentary. And the best thing that happened in the first season of the show, some people thought it was a documentary. Some people were like, is this scripted? Is this guy a real actor? Who are these people? And that was pretty cool. And I think that was a lot because of the style of it. And we were 90% 90 handheld. Yeah, we were 90% handheld. And and a lot of it comes from Julian because Julian had done a lot of documentaries. He's doing one right now. And... He and he talked about how like this needs. It, it was great when he came in because I had had all these ideas, and luckily enough, like when he showed up, it was like he had the same ideas, but then you know much more. He had his whole documentary idea, and one of the things was like he talked about how if you're a documentary cameraman, again you don't know what's going to happen next, and so one of the big signatures of the show was like if someone's talking. You know, everybody else, like, and then you say you want it to pan to the next person who's going to talk. Every other TV show is going to pan there so they can then catch the person's line. We don't do that because we don't know that that person's going to talk. Though we do because we read this script. We do know, but we pretend we don't know. We pretend we're making a documentary. And so we stay with you, and then suddenly we hear somebody talking over there, and then we pan to them late. Right, and so that creates the impression that you're seeing something that's not controlled. Like we don't, even the cameraman doesn't know what's going to happen next. And um, so that we, he had a lot of ideas like that, and that you're not looking straight at somebody. We're looking. It's called like it's not. It's called not close eye line. It's called far eye line, where we're looking for somebody from the side. Because in a documentary, we have to be able to pan from one person to the next without cutting. You're not like setting up a camera looking right in someone's face this way, and then you then you stop, you relight it, and you go and look at somebody's face the other way, that the viewer subconsciously realizes that there's a filmmaking process going on. And we wanted to make it 
So their subconscious felt like, oh, shit, this stuff's really happening. We're yeah. just, like, following them around. Like, it feels like we're the fly on the wall listening to these yeah. guys. And on the second episode, we did so- we did two scenes that broke every rule we had decided we would never do. <laughs> Which one? When he buys the Rolls Royce right. or he leases it, we do a shot, like, moving with the feet along the floor. Right. Which, like that's Travolta, like, like Batum and uh, yeah. Saturday Night Fever. Yeah, so like that. And we never would have done that. And then that was, like, totally out of the style. And then also in the in the liquor store, we kind of sat back with two zoom lenses and cameras and dollies. It's not handheld, and it's great. And it, it was another thing where I learned, which is that some t- when you when you do have your rules, you can break. Them. But every once in a while, you break it. It's actually even better. Right, right. It almost becomes more the show. But yeah, ninety nine percent of the time we don't break the rule. We were handheld. We did a lot of shots that that would have been steady cam. We did handheld a lot because we had this. Uh, Dave Perkle, who's a great handheld operator. I mean, maybe as good a handheld operator as I've ever met in my life. We got to get him in here, Perkle I guess, right? Because I've He'll heard be that a bunch of people from yeah, a bunch of people. David will be in soon. He just got back from doing a show in New Zealand, but he, I went to AFI with Dave. That's how we know each other. So we yeah. worked together for a long time. But but a DP's got a go-to camera guy. If it's a tricky shot, yeah. you go with Perkle. And just so everyone, oh else- yeah, Perkle was. Rem- I mean, the shame is is because he's a DP now. He doesn't operate that much, but he's a a brilliant, gifted operator. Yeah. And just so everyone knows the difference between handheld and steady cam, Stephen, if you could just explain to them what the difference is. Okay, so handheld, you've got it on your shoulder, and you. what's good about it is it's very intuitive. You just go wherever you want. What's bad about it is the camera can be really shaky if you're, if you're, if you're walk because you're walking with somebody. And then especially what Dave Perko could do is he could actually walk backwards over curbs in the street, upstairs, backwards. It was ridiculous. And that's not easy to do, to be aiming at somebody, walk backwards upstairs. With a heavy camera on your shoulder. Yeah, heavy camera. And then uh, handheld, you know, so th- those were normally done with a steady cam, which is like kind of a floating rig that keeps the camera smooth. And then you could, with a steady cam, you can be walking forward up the stairs with the camera aiming backward. But you can't do that when you're handheld. You, you, the camera's aiming where you're facing. And really what we started with, because you talked about breaking the rules, we almost said we were never going to use Steadicam. Like, this was always going to be handheld, but it was going to be handheld that was going to be as steady as it could be because we really didn't want that. There was a lot of TV at the time was that, uh, you know, over-stylized documentary where the camera was whipping around everybody and you were getting a headache like watching rack it. rack focus, punch zooms. Yeah, all yeah, that yeah. stuff. So we wanted to have it steady. Obviously, as the show went on and Mark Mylod came in, we got a little more stylized and we got a little more cranes and, and dollies and all that type of stuff. But early on, we wanted that really real feel, which also part of it, which, you know, Kevin Dillon and I have discussed on the show, which he was like television back then, Sex and the City, you were on a close up for the joke. You were not missing it. And it was important to me. And and I feel like it helped the show a lot was like, I don't care if they heard the joke. They'll hear it the second time they watch it, which a lot of people used to say to me, they may not watch it the first time, let alone the second time. But I was like, this has to feel like real life. You catch it when you catch it. And if you hear the line, great. If not, you don't, you know. So what did you think about that when we were doing that? I think that's what's so brilliant about the show. I mean, and we were used to, we, again, we would we tried to shoot you guys mostly in four shot or two doubles. I always felt like if we go to a single, a close-up, then we failed. It, right. it's, it's, because it's the entourage. It's about the group of the four of you. It's about, or two and two, you know. You know, it, it, it would, but, ne- but never like one. It's, I always thought like, oh, that's a shame, you know, because we want to show, 
And there's so much gained from being able to watch someone talk and someone reacting to them at the same time without having to cut to the reaction. You're able to see two people in the shot and you see, you know, a typical thing would be drama talking and Jerry reacting to him with scorn. Okay, so you're seeing them both at the same time. You don't have to cut to it. And it just feels much more real and much more alive. And, and, and throwing away stuff like that, and that came from you. It was just, it's just brilliant and so liberating. I mean, it's liberating. And, it, and it tr- it, 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 it tr- you trust in the writing and the, and the acting. You don't have to, like, like, nail it and point it out to the audience. You assume it's going to work. And, and it, that was and, liberating. And that is liberating. A, key, a key to that is to have the actors that obviously you need the scripts, but you need the actors that can deliver that because you're not going to save them in editing, which often can be done. But we would leave that out. Well, we've talked about this, too. And as an actor, and I know Scott Kahn and I have always talked about it, when you come, kind of what you were talking about, if you go do a guest star or you're on a on a – procedural show on on a network it's different the camera's always in your face you look over your shoulder they we're turning around to catch the over the shoulder look everything there was something about entourage where it just we just felt like the actors were just alone cameras were very 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 rarely in your way or in your face it was almost like they're out there somewhere for sure they're out there you just don't know where and there's countless examples of whether it's the can episode or whatever where you go hey man we're just four guys out here they don't even know because you can't see the cameras there's cameras everywhere you know so it it was it was liberating what i loved is that we would get on set and we would go here's the scene and the actors we go let's go start here and see how it goes a lot of filmmakers will give exact spots you're gonna land here you're gonna say this line when you get to this spot we would do it the exact opposite way which is we'd let the actors go go wherever you want and then we would sit and talk about how we can get it that way. And then, you know, sometimes... Well, yeah, listen, you got to roughly land <laughs> you got to work within the guidelines of where the, where the what the room is or what the street is or whatever it is. And then there are some actors who have their own situations, which we had on our set, usually Adrian, who wanted to move in some strange way that didn't really, really make sense to anybody else, but it ultimately worked. But I think that was great about what you helped bring to the show that... That the actors were going to be, they were going to be the stars. And I don't mean that, like, in the traditional sense, they get paid more money and stuff. We were going to let them dictate how the camera moved and where it went. So is that a normal way that you work in, in most of your stuff? Or how, how, does, how does it go, Steve? No, that's very rare. I mean, we don't, put, we don't put down marks on Entourage. We didn't put down marks. And usually you put down a mark. That's where you're going to stand. And then some people really are, if you light a certain way, it's really important that someone actually hit that exact mark. If they're a foot in front of it, it ruins everything. And so what, that was another thing that was part of it. We lit, we, we lit it in a way that actors could go almost anywhere in the room. And then you guys would show up. I remember we'd be like, it was hard enough to get to actually roll. The only way we could get anybody's attention was to roll the camera. Like right. we'd be working on stuff with the cameras and at a certain point we'd be ready and everybody's just hanging out. That was another thing. This is, I think this was Tim Marks who says, we're not going to let you guys go back to your trailer. You're <laughs> going to have to hang out. And so people playing basketball on the set. Right. You and, can't and then, win. You, you can't win. You, you're right. It's a no-win situation. Right. No, but no, it's great because it just made it so alive and wonderful. And so like the, the actors are circling with the crew and then at a certain point, like, okay, we're ready, and then we have to get people to pay attention so we can shoot this thing. Let's just say we're rolling. And then, oh, okay, and then, and then we do it. And, it, and that, that made it better because it was like the, what we're showing on screen is the same as what we're doing off screen. 
like right. the off-screen life, the ca- and 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 the phrase that I liked was "embrace the chaos," and and it's and and the and the idea was that it was always chaotic, and that was like the joy of it. I mean, it was. I mean, for me, it's fantastic. I really. Yeah. No, nothing bad about it at all. You know, it is hundred like, percent great. The the this podcast is kind of it really is. It's just the continuation of that stuff and the happy accidents that would happen because we really did leave so much leeway and because everyone was on set like most shows, people run back to their trailer, they sit in there on their phones for five hours. Here, people used to hang out on the set; they'd watch other people do their scenes. Yeah, we literally had nowhere to go. We yeah. weren't we were not allowed to go back to our trailers. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Steve, let me ask you a question. So you have a show that's so specifically stylized the way Entourage is, and then you go off and you do a show like The Affair, which Steve is like one of the main guys. And I I know people that just are flipped out. It's not missed an episode of The Affair, but it's a completely separate, I mean, it's just its own uh, very super stylized look and it's and it's it's cool. So ha- tell us a little bit about that. You change gears. Is it, is it different? Like, like is a communication with the showrunner kind of the same, but different? How, how was No, That's a great question. I mean, I, I think it has to come from the script. And then I and then also if there's a director or showrunner who has a vision that is specific um or the, you know like for example when I did the affair Mark Mylod from Entourage did the pilot and he and I came in and he had a very strong vision of what it should be and and that's what we did. And then when he left we tried to continue in that vision and and um and in some ways it changed and evolved and in other ways I would still argue that the pilot might be the best episode or one of the best episodes of The Affair. You know, you read a script, and and I think what Mark did is he read the script and he lets his imagination run and go, this is how it needs to feel. And it was, and that's, I know at least for Entourage, you know, Julie and I read the script and we had the same reaction about how this show needs to feel. And that's what's great. Every show should feel different. If you're doing the same thing every time, I mean, that would get, you know, boring. No, I, I love it. I love the idea of like, doing something that I haven't done. Right. Like, let's go, let's do this that way now. That's really cool. And now you're working on, because HBO is basically, they're rebooting every single show they've ever made except Entourage. <laughs> like, that's what they're doing. So I don't even care. Cause Would I'm you go? Only... Would you do it? Well, I said... He but... wouldn't have two months ago. Yeah. He, he scoffed at the idea. <laughs> and now, I think that, ironically, the internet is building you up a little bit. Well, yeah, they, they, you know, I'm a, I'm a weak, insecure person. So when they tell me how good I am, I start to get better. <laughs> no, but I mean, really, being back with these guys... We've had everybody come on the show, from Rex to Jeremy to Jerry, everyone except Adrian, by the way. But it's <laughs> Emmanuel, been so Emmanuel, crazy. you know, Gary Busey. It's been so fun getting everybody back together. Larry, Charles, Rob Weiss. By the way, better. did you see Fearberg roll his eyes when we said Gary Busey? Like, oh, <laughs> no, I love <laughs> him. Yeah, of course, but he's a character, lot. man. It's a lot. But <laughs> my, my my point was, where is he? Where? Oh, he's over there. He's down the beach now. <laughs> yeah, he came in here to do a podcast. It was a forty-five minute interview. He was here for five hours. We were turning off lights. It was still daylight. <laughs> Out. We were like doing everything to be like, Gary, we're leaving. By the way, Get I'd be quiet because he may still be here. But my <laughs> point was, is there's a universe where I'd be interested in doing it if everybody was involved. I wouldn't do it without anybody. We make jokes like we do it without Adrian. Of course we wouldn't. But I just think it's funny that HBO, we were the darling critical hit at the time and commercial hit. And then somehow it sort of twisted that we were like the bad boys, misogynistic bullshit, whatever. I don't even care. 
doesn't matter. But my point is, is they're rebooting In Treatment, which was a great show, very different. And now you're doing that, which is essentially the first round was really one room. The episodes took place in one room. So how is it now? What's happening with that? Well, now it's really a whole house. And you see out the windows of the house in the original. Well, that helps. Well, it, it makes it very challenging for me. Yes. Right. But yes. For an audience member yeah. to not be staring at the wall. Yeah. It helps. And, and, and yeah. Yeah. No, it, wait, it's got why, huge... do you say, why is it so much more challenging for you? Tell us. Um, I guess I can say this. We were given a 13 foot stage. Okay. 13 feet high. And you look and they said we want to make it mid-century building which is big windows, door walls, you know, four big windows that open up to a patio in the backyard. And then there's a ceiling of the stage 13 feet high. And the whole stage itself isn't that big because that, this was the best stage we could get at the time. And so now it has to, you want to look out there and see L.A. And now you gotta see it's got to really look, it can't look like a backdrop. It has to look like. It's got to be dark and during the day, it's got to be. Yeah, and and it's got to really look like that's L.A., not like that's a fake backdrop. Now, does this have a Hollywood bent to it? Why does it have to be L.A. for a show about a therapist? Are there Hollywood stories in this? It's a very different a vision of the original show it's it's the le- the leading character now is a black lady who lives in Baldwin Hills and so the house is in Baldwin Hills okay it's Uzu Dubai and, she, and uh she's brilliant and then everybody's you know we we uh is there's a new characters and it's trying to incorporate the moment we're in it's very political much more political than the original one and it's trying to talk about race issues and you know all the issues that are in the political the atmosphere issues, right. right now. Very current, yeah. Well, we, we don't we don't talk politics here at the, <laughs> the podcast. That said, this is a question that we always ask, and Steve, you're a smart guy. What 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 does I, – I, and more, more importantly, I know that Doug has an answer for this, but what do you think uh, a, a reboot of Entourage looks like in this day and age with regards to content and and the, the overall tone of the show? I, I think any version of Entourage would be fantastic, first of all. And then what, what, it, what it should be and how it... Re- I mean, it has to look those things in the face because you have... What I just was re-watching the episodes and, you know, I mean, it's, there's a huge amount of all these guys trying to get laid. And now that has been painted at the current moment as right. a treacherous territory. And in some <laughs> cases, it, it's, you know, a bad thing. In other cases, maybe it leads to love and it's a great thing. I think it would have to, like, kind of face that head on. Just go right at it. Go right at it. Right. And not shirk, not not tone it down, but, but face, like, really. Like Doug always says, Doug says, like, if I were writing for Ari, I, I wouldn't be dialing it down to for the for the audience, you'd be dialing it down because that's what it would be like. Yeah, Ari, Ari Gold would not be speaking to anybody like yes. that. He'd be fired in 14 seconds. No, he exactly. So Never. it Never. would be the new world. Yeah. It would be great. I mean, and 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 one of the, and I want to say this because it's one of the things I've never forgotten. There's two, two two stories, but the same 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 moral. One is we when we picked we we were going to go to Earth Cafe to shoot, and I go look at it, and you, if you go inside of it, it looks like you're someplace in the Midwest. And so I go, the only place that even looks okay is outside. And I go, but I don't even like the outside. <laughs> and and so I met with Larry. It's really not great. No, it's not. And and so I met with Larry Charles about it. I said, you know, I know this is where it would really happen, this meeting. But it doesn't look like it's where it would really happening. It doesn't look like what it is. And he said, he said, he said, but that is where it would really happen. And he says, somehow, even somebody in Ohio who never goes to L.A. will somehow 
understand in their subconscious that that's the real place where it happens. And, and I, okay. And he was right about that. And then we would be shooting, like we were shooting the, the cafe bean and tea leaf. And we did that thing with his meeting with the agent. And it was like, somebody said on the crew, he said, I actually had that conversation at the table right next to that one. And, and, and I, one point I came up to you after two or three episodes, I said, you know, this episode is so funny. And you said to me, but is it true? And I I'll look never at you, Doug, that getting all artistic. Yeah. Yeah. No, you were like comedy. you wanted it to be the truth. But I want. I, I, but by the way, though, I love that you say that because I'm not exaggerating. 24 hours ago, someone sent me a post from Instagram where someone does a tour of the Earth Cafe based oh, on yeah, entourage. No, there's someone, an entourage someone, tour. Someone, no, but someone from Australia that came and and is is legitimately going. I go to Earth Cafe because of Entourage. And that became one of our most iconic places. It's a great place, by the way. So forgetting the look of it, great food and great dish great and, food. and great people there. But it's not the most exciting to look at thing visually, which I think is exactly the point that I used to make both on the writing side and the filmmaking side. Reality is reality. And I used to say that, listen, I really want to be funny, but we want this to be real. And we want to be in the real places that people are going. And we want to be in the in the real business situations that happen. We tried to move to the Earth Cafe in Santa Monica, which was equally as boring. <laughs> Potentially more boring. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? It was just, it just is what it is. Like, that's what it was. But listen, I can't even tell you all the time, go to LA, first stop, Earth Cafe. Yep. Yeah, it's great. And great Julian tomato came... soup, by the way. Great tomato soup. And uh, the desserts are ridiculous. Chocolate chip cookies, excellent. Oh, my God. A coconut cream pie or whatever that thing is. Julian had, the... see, he also came up with great ideas to shoot it, which I don't remember that many people doing before, which was we would go across the street and have the camera low and then have the cars going through the foreground to start out the scene. And that was like, a that kind of became a signature shot in some ways, I think, of the show. That was coming. That was all Julian's idea, and I think that that helped a lot. That you, you know, that just made it feel very alive. I mean, yeah. that scene when Jessica Alba comes up to them, it's great. Yep. the scene it feels it, it feels true. <laughs> it feels like that's exactly how it would happen. Directors come in and out, and there's usually uh, less DPs. You have one or two DPs for your show or for for your season. But you have different directors that come in. And when you're the established DP and you're, you've established the look of the show, Steve, you then have to tell the guest DP, the guest director, like, hey, we don't do shots like that. Like, right? Is it because the director's the boss? Kind of, but not really in TV because it's, it's a producer's medium, and and then you have a, a writers, experience. The writers you have an used to be anyway. You have an experienced DP who the director comes in and says, "All right, I got a great idea. We're going to do a steady cam. We're going to come down." It's like, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do a handheld with a forty. That's DP. hilarious. Let's go with cinematographer, cinematographer. out there. The okay, cinematographer. cinematographer. Yeah. What happens is the show starts to develop a style, so it became like we used a forty millimeter and a sixty-five millimeter on on. And often what you think you're going to start out with, you don't really know. But then by the time you guys start to get into it, it's really true that shows have a certain look. And a lot of it is based simply on what lens you're using. Certain shows are wide angle shows. CSI was famous for taking the biggest zoom lens you could get and zooming it all the way in. And everything was shot at 270 millimeter. That's what CSI looks like. And if you want to do CSI, that's what a hard ass to look. Other shows like Breaking Bad, very wide angle. Um, but our show was 40 and 65 now. And a lot, we've had this discussion at the ASC, the American Society of Cinematographers, where people come up and asked about that. Like if a director asks you to do a shot, like, do you say no? And 
most of cinematographers say, yeah, I tell them, no, you can't do that. That's not the style of the show. And I, unfortunately, or fortunately, I've never said no to a director that I remember. And I always go, well, if they have this idea, then let's do it. Um, I may suggest this would look more like the show if we did it this way, or w- w- have you considered this idea? But I actually have let them decide. I've I never, remember one of our other never cinematographers, not one of our other, Todd Dos Reis, told the director that we don't, we just don't do that, you know? And uh, Well, he was actually the, he was actually operating at that time, but a guy wanted to do a low angle, like look, just something that was so far. And Todd just said like, listen, we're just not, it's never going to be in the show. So if you want to <laughs> spend your time, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, by DGA rules, he can shoot what shots he wants, but he probably doesn't want to waste two hours of a day when you got people that have done every episode saying, bro, that shot's never going to be in there. I remember there was one director, I'm not going to say his name, and I liked him a lot, too. So I was like, oh, we doing one for the real, bro? He was like, what do you mean? I'm like, we don't. buddy, hate to break it to you. We don't do these shots. <laughs> It'll um, never make the cut. this looks really cool, but I'm happy to be on the real. So yeah. let's do it. You're already lit for it, you know? And I, But yeah, and sure enough, it just wasn't, we just didn't get- it Didn't feel like the show. It, yeah, and, 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 and you just started to know what shots were and weren't going to be in there. But it is know? interesting because, and I do want to get into this next stage because Julian was our real go-to director, certainly for- First three seasons. Three seasons. For sure. And then I remember, you know, listen, I, I directed a bunch of episodes and I know what the show looks like and I know what I want. But for me, I really do have to rely on my cinematographer a lot to help me get what I, what's in my head. And by the way, it's interesting that you talk about the math stuff. I'm so bad with math and I, I do think that does make a big play of it. It's and geometry it, to a certain yeah, extent. Yeah, but I, I know what, I, what I want to see. But then like you set the camera up and you go, wait, how the fuck are you going to do that? You really do have to figure out a lens that'll work and where the people are going to go. But anyway. Anyway, Mark Mylod came in, and I remember my first meeting with Mark Mylod. Mark Mylod took a script that I wrote. He walked in and started talking for 20 minutes how he was going to shoot this scene. And I was just like, this this is why I'm not going to direct, because this guy has a vision, and he sees... He, I, I hear every word, how I want it to sound, what I think people should look like. And then Mark came in, which I think you can you can probably speak better to me of... How do you feel the style shifted a little bit from Mark and Julian, who I consider are two... They are two guns. Well, I don't, I don't say our best directors. But well, they my, were. Okay, but they were my two guys. Those right. were the guys, if I had to pick two directors, those were going to be my guys. And so, for, for big, important episodes, it was one of those two Yeah, guys. so, but how, how would you describe working with each of them a little differently? And how Mark, because I think Mark was, correct me if I'm wrong, Mark was a little more stylized, more cranes, dollies, helicopter, you know, bigger. So what would you say? Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. I mean, they're both brilliant directors, but come from, and it's part of even their background because again, Julian comes out of documentary, and Mark did a lot of commercials, and so he his. I mean, I remember when I first saw one of the episodes. I mean, I did an episode with him that was in between. Do you remember which one? It was the one at the at the Chateau Marmont. Mm, um, season one? No, no, no. No, it's season three. Okay. It's, I think it's number seven. Right. And it's, uh, you know, it's where you're in love with uh, Emmanuel. Malin Ackerman. No, it was. Yeah, Malin. It was, yeah, no, yeah. It was, the, uh, Malin it was Three's Ackerman. Company, but we weren't at the Chateau. We were at uh, we were at the W or the Standard downtown. No, right? no. The, it's, the, it's, the, it's the main one. Roosevelt. The Roosevelt. The yes, Roosevelt. Yes, yes, right, yes. Right. It's yes, at yes, the yes, Roosevelt. And that's a great episode. You're great in that. Thank you. You're great. You're <laughs> always great, but you're great in for that. a Golden Globe, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Um and that doesn't show quite as much the difference. But then when Mark took over after Julian left, it became more his personal style. And I remember watching one of the episodes he did, and I thought, 
And actually, I watched it with Julian. And we both watched it and said, this is actually almost completely different than what we were doing. But it works, and it's fucking great. Yeah. And it shows the, 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 the strength of the, I mean, honestly, of the writing and the acting, because it, it actually was able to go to that different look and feel and work in, its, in, a, in a slightly different way, but still be fantastic. The thing about Doug, which was nice, and, and as a director, you have to, it's not that you, you have to cover yourself, but you just, you know, you got to do, there's certain things that you have to do because of, well, the boss calls and there's a missing shot or wh- where's that line or whatever it is. Doug, especially on the movie or wherever, he would only have to hear it one time. And he would do it, and if if it took ten takes, it took ten takes, and if it took one take, he would basically go, "Was that in was that in focus?" That's it. I don't need to hear. I heard it. I heard it. You tell me it looks good, Fearberg. We're moving. I don't want to talk about it, Doug. All he had to do was hear it one time, and he knew what he wanted to hear. So there is the stylized version, which is awesome. And truthfully, no offense, Doug, I'd rather have the skill set of the My Lotter and Julian. But for an actor, there's a comfort there when when you're the director is walking away from the actor, going, "No, I." Believe me, I just heard it. We got it. And unless the deep director of photography says that there, you know, there there was uh, something wrong with the with the lens, we're moving on. Yeah, so there is a different style that you brought as well. At the end of the day, though, and it's not to dismiss filmmaking is of course a visual medium, but the reality is is the best scripts with the right actors are gonna be the best show, no matter how they shot. That being said, when you take it to that other level, which Entourage, we started out as such a low budget, such a short schedule thing that Julian, who again, they're both, Mylod and Julian are both fucking brilliant. Yeah, I mean, directors. they're one and one A, but, flip them around. But what I'm, saying is, is, what I'm guys. saying is Julian was working in a much tighter budget at the beginning of the show where there was much less time to even contemplate the idea of experimentation. Now, Mylod. Yeah, that's true. Mylod just came in and, you know, Mylod directed the Medellin trailer and, and the trailer in the, uh, the movie, and he just had such a big vision. And we were fortunate that it was coming as the show was succeeding more, that we were able to do bigger stuff that he wanted to do, which, you know, Julian probably would have started expanding that way also. But I, I think that it is an interesting contrast when you look at the show as it grows. I spoke to, uh, we spoke to Frankel about it, you know, when I said to HBO about the pilot, I want to shoot in widescreen, they honestly like talked to me like I was a fucking idiot. They were like, who do you think you are, Orson Welles? And I remember saying that 10 years from now, which we're now 16 years later, every TV in America in the house is going to be big, and TV is going to be a different form. And now, because I want to talk to you about this, because you said I decided I didn't want to do TV anymore. Now... I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, the best stuff that's happening is on TV rather than film. I mean, unless you're going to go shoot a Marvel movie, you're going to shoot amazing stuff in these shows you're doing, right? Or unless it's a super passion project. Yeah, no, I mean, I like like them both, but what happened is television got great. And also, I mean, even as a DP, the frame got perfect. It used to be like, you know, there was fuzzy edge of frame, you didn't even know what it was. And 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 what at some point when I was doing movies, I went back to my agent. I said, you know, the when you do television, the writing is better than most of the movies I'm doing. They actually, if they write it, they actually have the money to make it. Well, and, that's a big one. You know, on indie movies, it's it's challenging as a DP because often they'll write something and they, well, we don't have money. I, well, you, but you guys just wrote this night scene where he walks down the street in the suburban neighborhood and he goes from one house to the other, and you don't want me to get a condor to light that. And they go, no, 
why can't you just shoot it? I go, because it would come out completely black because there's no light in a suburban street. Fearberg, you just and, reminded me of a great Fearberg story. Fearberg would tell the story of whatever movie, something that Fearberg was watching, and it was uh, the two Russian generals play chess and the, the war rages on in the background or something. Oh right? my, no, that's a, the Alex Cox movie that I did. Right. What, what was it? Like it was called, uh, it was uh Walker. It was shot in Nicaragua, but Didn't it's we a, use a clip from that. Listen, we, I mean, we use the clip from, Doug, one of but your it's, short a, films. it's a, it's that like a, that was a short that I made. It's like life. a, it's a one eighth of a page headline and the generals play chess as the war rages on in the background. <laughs> I can't believe so, you remember. That. I remember. I'll never forget it because I've used it. It a bunch of times. Use oh. that expression a bunch of times. Yeah, okay. You got two guys playing chess. That's very easy. Let's talk about the war raging on in the background. In the background, right. right. Someone's so gotta I gotta shoot light that. the back. We gotta have a hundred extras charging each other, raging with the war in the background. And it's just something that you uh a story that you told me that I'll that I'll never forget. The war rages on in the background. But it comes down to budgeting, like you said. It's like you can do it. I just need the time and the money and the resources. Yeah. You wanna light the beach? Let's light the beach. <laughs> We'll do I need it. three condors. Yeah, I need their pre. Can do anything. Pre the money. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, Stephen, what are your what are your, some of your memories of Entourage? Anything specific stand out? Good, bad, episode wise. Like episode wise shots. I have to tell you, looking at this man, I realize what it's such a precious part of my life. The whole experience of it, and one of the stories I remember was um, there was some night we were shooting. I forget, and uh, we went to like ten o'clock or eleven o'clock. And we were, re- Julie and I were really tired. And I think you or someone said, Kevin Connolly, you're saying just so. Yeah, Kevin Connolly. I think you said, let's go out. We're going to go out drinking at the Prey. <laughs> I know what it was. You want me to tell you what it was? I remember this. It was. But I- I'm loving, by the way, his fondest memories of going drinking with Connolly. No, no, it was, yeah. it was the, we were at physically at Prey, but Sounds it was like the Prey. Jimmy Kimmel. See, that was the thing, too. We would, we would do these, these scenes and, and there would be such a buzz after. Wow, we just knocked off a bunch of shots and we stole a bunch of shots and we shot at Jimmy Kimmel. So, you know, it's a Friday night and everybody walks out and it's 10 o'clock and everybody's adrenaline is so high. You don't want the want it to go. And I was like, hey, guys, let's go. Let's go to <laughs> let's, let's go. go to pray. I can get 24 dudes in the back door. Let's <laughs> let's do it. And we went and we danced. Remember Sarah Foster, Julian? Yeah. Oh, but yeah. That was often the case whenever there would same thing happen with the YouTube show. And whenever we would pull off these big sort of things uh you know from a from a shooting standpoint yeah they, there was like but a, i want to hear Stephen. what were you saying that what's what's the fond memory that well, Connelly's this, but, dance moves or what no the particular thing <laughs> was is it was like a thursday and we finished and we were exhausted and all we wanted to do was sleep and then julian said to me okay let's just do it as a test like our bodies are saying and our responsibility because we're shooting the next morning right. <laughs> he goes let's just do it and see what happens and we went out and we I don't, you know, we partied till two till they closed that place, and then we went to four to some <laughs> other place that you're not supposed to go to, and we got like three hours of sleep, but we were all the tension and anxiety was gone, and the three hours of sleep was better than ten hours of anxiety ridden <laughs> sleep, and we showed up the next day and we felt like newborn, right? It was like a release. It was a complete. It, it was like a real lesson. Like yeah, no, so yeah. Now, then, then I don't want to have people then go out and not get enough sleep and ruin their movie. <laughs> but, but on that show, that that there was a, it was just a great joy, right? Throughout, I mean, it was a joyful experience, and it was nice. Know. It was great that uh, we got you back for the movie. Oh my god, that that meant a lot to me. And Fearberg, we're gonna have to bring you back when we talk about the movie. We'll, we'll, well break I, it down shot by I shot. Also rem- <laughs> I, I do remember. So you remember Fearberg? I broke my leg. 
Oh and, my God! And, and he kept you kept well, I, I acting. Kept, I kept it going for two and a half days, and then we, you know, and Fearberg and I are close. Like we've we've been in Colorado for six months doing a movie in twenty one days. We've been and, in just, and just to, to throw it Johnny out there, Walker Blue, yeah. uh, Connolly, uh, Russell Wilson threw an errant pass, according <laughs> to Connolly. Connolly dove for it, hit a rock, broke his leg. Anyway, kept working. But we're 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 doing it, and I'm realizing like three days in, I'm like, I I just don't have anything. I just I got to go to the doctor. I can't. I'm tapping out, and I remember Steve. He's got the the lens on the finder and it's kind of over his shoulder and you're setting up the wide shot and Fearberg goes, you know what, let's break. We'll come back and we'll shoot the wide shot. And I said, Steve, I'm not coming back. <laughs> and he goes, no, 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 we're going gonna, gonna to come, we're going to drop. No, 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 Steve, I'm not coming back. <laughs> you got about seven minutes to set for this wide shot because I am out. I'm done. I am tapped, literally tapped out. And uh, Fearbear's like, oh, why don't we get them? Like, you, you, you could have been an interesting angle because I ain't in the wide shot. I promise you that. But Hilarious. we got it, though. No, you're the toughest guy in the world. I mean, I, the very first night I said, you got that's really fucked up. You got to go to the doctor. I knew I knew uh, 60 people flew in. We had a four day shoot at this house that cost a gazillion dollars to rent. And all these people were there. And I just had to I just had to get through it. Uh, that's just all there is to it. And I'm not like looking for a pat on the back. But yeah, I fucking broke my guy leg. He's walking around with a broken <laughs> leg. How about Doug? Cut. What's wrong? Well, you look like you're limping. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I think my leg is broken. Dylan, at one point, I, I don't know if you guys remember this, but you actually, Fearberg went to a tighter lens, and Dylan actually, had, we got to talk about this. Dylan had one hand on the back of my belt buckle. Holding you up. And he was carrying me. It was only from, honestly, it was probably seven or eight feet. I had to hit the mark. I couldn't. I, couldn't I remember that. Hit the mark, and Dylan, like, <laughs> put his hand, grabbed by my, grabbed me by my belt, and if you watch it, You'll never notice it, but if you know, you go, oh, God, Jesus right, Christ, this right. guy, you know. The only thing that was good is that I had sunglasses on, and I started drinking very early in the morning. But you know what it is? All of it speaks to the same thing. It was it was a great friendship of almost everybody on this show. It really was. Relationships that could have continued on for almost 20 years now. Which and life gets in the way, you know, and that's what, Doug, we're talking about, you know, with the with the podcast, you know, you, you, so much goes on and then somebody comes in and you realize, like, even Rex, we're like realizing, you know, we learned all kinds of stuff about Rex. Rex is from Ohio. I didn't know that. <laughs> Rex is a serious actor. Very, very takes the acting part of it very, very seriously. And he talked about how he was able to, some of the things that were being said to him weren't being said to Rex. They were being said to Lloyd and it was carried character stuff and it was interesting to hear him talk about how he in his head what he was thinking when there's lines like you have so much cum in your eyes and all those all those kinds of uh, dandies that Piven hit him with but it's yeah you get people back and you know we've had Emmanuel one episode we're gonna do we're gonna do the women of Entourage we're gonna get Carla Emmanuel Constance and Perry that's the oh, that's the dream date yeah. hopefully we can get that going soon so fun. thank but, you very much for yeah Steven this was awesome and we're gonna get you back to talk about the movie maybe uh, there'll be a 40 podcast 40 was my show that uh, that HBO did not uh, choose to air, which you can say something about that. Steve. I have a lot of opinions about that. I mean, is that, that insanity, correct? I mean, we. Well, I thought your original script was fucking brilliant. And I think all the notes you gave, they gave were, were not right. And, um, and yeah, and I thought that show was still great. But even still, the pilot we shot was great. great. And it, was, just, just, it was great. And uh, they uh, decided to reboot some other shit. So. I, I would like to get, I, I would think, because I think it's important for people that are listening. I think people are going to love this because. They listen. They like the inside stuff. So I, I believe people are going to appreciate this. I'd like to bring Gary, if we can figure it out, to get Gary Goldman and and Fearberg in because Gary Goldman's our, our assistant, our first director, assistant producer. director, 
and uh, producer, but the the relationship between the first assistant director and the cinematographer is not only important; it's crucial oh, to, yeah. to making to making uh, the wheels turn. And uh, you know, Gary Goldman at times, uh, you know, we wouldn't have gotten through a lot of things without Gary Goldman. So Gary sure. Goldman is not only a nice guy; he's a brilliant creative soul yes he is and and nobody by the way stages like a lot with the first ad do is they stage like all the background and extras and 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 nobody better than him nobody and for people listening what that is is you know if you got you know drama and turtle uh at the bar you know the war rages on in the background right so what is it you you spend you take every single you go through Every single person, and you say, "Okay, you're going to be drinking, you're going to be crossing when this person says this," and they really and our our background and our wide shots looked amazing, and that's the AD department. Yeah, it's that it's choreography. Yeah, we hope to be back. Nick Connolly always goes crazy when I tease an episode, but I think we're going to have Dice next week. That's the plan. You'll have to cut it if not. But Andrew Dice Clay, we're hoping to get next week, which will be awesome. And then uh, uh, Janice, who was our post production supervisor, also very interesting for filmmakers. Yeah. So anyway, that wraps up another episode of victory the podcast you can follow us at victory the podcast on instagram and thank you steve fearberg thank you for having me it's such a thrill to see you guys